0: Hello, welcome. It's time for Homo sapiens. Um, Suddenly, I'm running a circus. Well, you know what? Sometimes life does feel like a circus. And today, we've got a very nice entertainer with us. See what I did there? What a segue. How are you all? Before I come on to who that entertainer is, let's. Do the important stuff. How's your week been? What's good? What's not good? I want to hear it all. How did you all feel about last, last week's episode? Stephen K. Amos. Write in. Tell us your thoughts. Hello at homo sapienspodcast.com, at homo sapiens on Instagram. And I also had a lovely email from listener Jake about our World AIDS Day special, actually. But before all of that, who's on the show? Leo Reich is on the show today. Leo is an incredible comedian. He is the next big thing. Mark my words. He is so funny. He's a comedian, he's a writer, and he's just got his debut show on HBO called Literally Who Cares. And he's going to talk to us all about it. And we're going to talk about him and his life. I first saw him when he was supporting Simon Amstel on Simon's tour Spirit Hole. And he did this set and I just laughed and laughed and he just gripped the room. He was hysterical. So if you can watch his um, special, my God, please do. Um, That's coming up in just a moment. So I think it's time to head to the emails. But just before I do, one quick thing. Ad-free listening. A reminder that if you want to listen to Homo Sapiens without the ads... You can. All you've got to do is go inside your Apple Podcast app, go to our Homo sapiens page, and the option to subscribe to Homo sapiens for 149 a month is there. Whilst you're there, do not forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple so you never miss an episode, and it helps other people discover us. Let's have a look at this email from Lovely Jake. Thank you so much for a poignant episode. I've lived with HIV for over 15 years, and I cannot explain the depth of gratitude I hold to be on meds to be undetectable. Long live the NHS. Sadly, this sense of gratitude is always tinged with shame and survivor's guilt. We cannot and must not forget the way governments and leaders peddled a narrative of hate at gay men back then. But more importantly, must not continue to allow these same narratives to be regurgitated as they have been in recent years. The LGBTQ plus community has to remember these stories and the same tired tropes being remixed and used as cheap way to garner popularity and votes. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the scapegoating of, you know, this is me now, but, you know, the echoes with scapegoating of trans people is unbelievable. Back to the email. Now more than ever, we need to remain connected. HIV AIDS was devastating to our community, but it unified us. It shouldn't take another tragedy to bring our community together. Jake, thank you. That is a beautiful email, and I couldn't agree more. Now, let's go and listen to the funniest man in showbiz, Leah Reich. I'm living in a hotel at the moment. Oh, because um, because I'm in Australia, not because I'm glamorous. And well, um, well, maybe both. Uh, you could be both. <laughs> I'm doing my best, <laughs> and there's no water in the bit. All the water's gone, so someone's going to come. I know someone's going to come up here and start trying to fix it while you're while we're talking. But you know, they can I, join the podcast too. That's amazing. So let's get
1: someone else. Bring someone else in. Get a third perspective, that's always really useful. What do you mean the
0: water's (laughs) gone? Like, there's no water. I just turn on the tap and nothing comes out. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty, that's pretty explicit. Well, it's gonna be all of our lives in 20 years, right?
1: That's true. So so really they're preparing you and that's, you you
0: get a heads up. (laughs) That's perfect, really. And so I saw you supporting Simon Amstel and you were so fucking funny. And it really stayed with me, the show that you did. How did you skip over? How did you skip over ten years of um, slogging your guts out? Not to belittle the wonderful work you have done, but I'm like, please it's, no, you, please. You're coming it. in quite hot, Leo. Yeah, I don't really know. I have no idea. It was not.
1: It was not the plan. I mean, having ha- doing a like a TV special was never even something that I thought would happen at any point, let alone <laughs> yeah. after the first show so i'm sort of i'm still i'm riding the wave it's very strange and i don't know it was just like a, a series of weird like well, not quite coincidences but just like very lucky breaks that happened all in a row that i feel like mm. i've totally used up my allotted amount of luck like four times over at this point point. and it was just because there was the, i mean american producers came to the show in edinburgh and then it went to new york and then the people from hbo came to the New York run and really liked it. And none of those things had to happen like that. And I I think that those American producers probably wouldn't have come to the Edinburgh run if I hadn't got reviews. I was really lucky in getting reviews published really early in that run, which is just like luck of the draw Mm -hmm. on some level. It was all just a, you know, one thing snowballed into another. And I'm
0: still Mm. trying to figure out why. (laughs) But it's great. It's incredible what's happened, but my, I don't ask the question in any way that it is in any way undeserved because it really stayed with me, that show that you did at Simon's show. So how did, you, how did you start doing stuff? Like, you know, were you doing it at school? Did you want to be a comedian? I was like a big,
1: when I was a teenager, I was like a massive comedy fan. Like nerd, mm. freak, rat boy who would go to everything be completely obsessed with it. Uh, yeah, would go often by myself to see like a work in progress sketch show, and be like one of two people there. Just keep showing up to the same people's stuff. Like really like obsessive comedy fan. And then I didn't really do anything at school. I wrote uh, like a play with my friend, um, which I've never revisited for obvious reasons that I'll want to tear off my skin. Um, and then. <laughs> actually started doing comedy when I went to uni and just... I guess this was like, well, I loved it. I loved watching this so much. And, I, and at that point had truly clocked my 10,000 hours of, of, like,
0: watching it. I was like, may as well give it a go. Yes. And did you find the introspective stuff hard at first? Well, that was always the stuff that I really liked the most, was people being...
1: Like, a a kind of brutal honesty. I mean, the stuff I was doing before Simon's show was more kind of, like, explicitly confessional or anecdotal. And then the show itself is, like... I don't really say anything true or revealing about my own life, but I think it's still... Mm. The the way we always talked about it when we were developing it is sort of, like, confessional through irony. So that by the end of Mm. the hour, hopefully... You do get a sense of real introspection, almost through how um, evasive and non-committal and ironic <laughs> and sort of unearnest I've been the entire time, and hopefully that turns into something maybe more revealing about what's going on internally than it than it would have been if I had just like said a bunch of stuff that had actually happened. But yeah, that was always yeah. my I, I always lo- I, I'm, I'm like an Edinburgh baby. I would always watch the. They're like work in progresses. Before everyone went to Edinburgh, and then from the age of fifteen, have been to Edinburgh almost every year as a viewer, and then later mm. as a performer, and then would watch all the the kind of high shows that would come back after Edinburgh. And that like the idea of doing comedy as an hour that would need something slightly more grounded or emotional potentially to sustain it over the course of a full show, that's always been, like, kind of central to to the stuff that I've always really loved. Or the total opposite, where it's just, like, totally meaningless, which I love as well.
0: (laughs) So who were some of your... Who were some of your favourite comedians growing up? I mean, truly, I don't say this with any... Like,
1: it couldn't be more true. Simon was my complete, like, number one first... Mm. experience of watching stand-up and being like this is fucking amazing and
0: Mm. properly
1: laughing and feeling something and going I mean at at that point I was probably I don't know I was probably like 13 or 14 when I saw do nothing for the first time and Mm -hmm. at that point had only experienced comedy in a sort of like bite-sized Saturday night tv sense and it really just immediately opened the floodgates into like oh con- like stand up can be so much more than that and get at so much uh, much deeper and more interesting and more complicated stuff um and be just mm-hmm. as funny and so that was really like the first thing and then after that i started going to the invisible dot which was a, a comedy club around the corner from where i live it that was in king's cross it doesn't exist anymore yes. but i would go there the whole time it was very like it was very like hipster wave like twenty twelve. They they had like a weird font and it was like a it like it was the first sort of craft beer craze. A lot of people there in sort of round glasses oh. with big beards and, and like man buns and stuff. It was that kind of era. And I was just like obsessed with watching people like um like Jamie and Tash Dimitriu and Lolly Fope and like Mae Martin was doing stuff at there at the time. Sheeps, who are a sketch group, are amazing. All of, the, yeah, that kind of Tim Key, all of these people. I would, love you, Tim Key. T- yeah, Tim Key's amazing. And I'd go on like a Saturday night, <laughs> often by myself, at uh, the age of 15 or whatever, and be served underage by the people behind the bar, and would just cry laughing at yeah. all of these people. And also, I think, really. <laughs> and this is gonna make me sound even more lonely than I sound already, but there was real sense of like, it was. It felt like a community enterprise. It felt like there was a kind of house style and all of these comics knew each other and hung out with each other. And I was like, that's so fucking cool um, that that mm. they'd get up on stage, sort of pretend to be like a cat with a cold or something insane, <sighs> probably never do it ever again. And then, like, hang out with each other. And I was like, (laughs) so it was simultaneously, I love comedy. And also, separately to that, I'd love to have a big group of crazy friends. (laughs) But you were 15. How old were they? They must have been, I think they're probably about 10 years older than me. So they must have been, like,
0: 25. And then... So were you like, hi, guys. Would you, like, go and stand with them? And maybe, like, there's a 15-year-old. Not Not (laughs) quite. I would sometimes
1: tweet, and this is always, it's so funny as well, because then then I started doing comedy and and a lot of the time I would be like, hi, nice to meet you. And they'd be like, oh, you're that, you're, I know you. You're the guy. (laughs) From from like Twitter. You're the child.
0: Tweet after the
1: shows that being like, great show tonight.
0: So humiliating. I think it's lovely. And I love, I love an enthusiast. Yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I liked at the time, and I liked enthusiasts. Uh, that making the transition from enthusiast <laughs> to professional comedian who would like to be taken at least vaguely seriously, is is difficult, <laughs> I would say. I, I I burned a lot of bridges in terms of in terms of clout and aloofness. <laughs> that no
0: one yeah. has ever
1: thought that I was kind of intimidating or aloof but that's probably fine because
0: i'm not but listen you either come with that software or you don't and just don't try and fake it you know what i mean like (laughs) i i I spent so long trying to be aloof and it's like it doesn't work i just can't help myself i know wouldn't it be lovely though so it's so classy so classy to just sort
1: of not care about anything (gasps) and and instead i care so much about everything
0: same same i i always have this I joke around about this with my husband because it's a particularly a sweet spot for me, which is like to talk in therapy terms that I'm not sure are true or right, but like having <laughs> anxious attachment style and having avoidant attachment style. Mm-hmm. I am anxious attachment style. My husband is avoidant attachment style. Shorthand for anyone listening who doesn't know, like anxious attachment style, is like you're really intense and you want them to like <laughs> be with you all the time. Avoidant attachment style. It's mm-hmm. like they kind of just want to be away from you, and the two often yes. meet like those are the people you end up um, you end up with. I'm like, so, are you going to text me back? And he's like, we've been married for ten years <laughs> <Get over it." laughs> So who was this little kid who on a Saturday night isn't going out with his friends and is going to comedy clubs were you what was going on were you being bullied Learning yeah. what was going on <laughs> Wow, well, that's a, I, a
1: big question i was asking myself at the time um what's going on um i <laughs> no i wouldn't say i was being i wouldn't say i was being bullied in any meaningful sense i was at a i was at an all boys school um which i was finding difficult and mm-hmm. I think it was more just a feeling of being, (laughs) even though I would never have thought this at the time and at the time would have thought my experience was totally unique and not a cliche in any way. But I think I was just having just quite like, like basic teenage angst of like, no one understands me. um, I find it hard to connect with other people. The stuff that I feel like I like about myself, no one else seems to appreciate. I I I found it hard to fit in. I was very socially anxious, all of that stuff accumulated into a f- feeling quite isolated, and also, honestly, bored. I think that was a huge part mm. of my teen experience was just re- really feeling bored and stuck and not knowing what to do about feeling so bored all the time of, really? of everything that was going on.
0: What were you bored by? I
1: guess, well, I guess all the, I guess loneliness is so boring on some level. I, th- I think <laughs> yeah. that's an un- underrated element of being lonely is that you don't have anything to do um, apart from sort of <laughs> I- introspection which I hadn't i sort of run out I run out quite early of, of stuff
0: to think about myself so I started I started stalking Lolly Adafo yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> essentially not not none yeah was that to do with being queer? You know, like, did you come out at school? Did you know you were? Did... Well, I always think about it like, ev- kind of
1: everything I have ever done is to do with being queer. And also none of it is. It, it's like so inextricable from every uh, like element of my life that it's hard to know what is and isn't a direct yes. response to it. But yeah, of course it was. I, I think that's a huge part of it. and And almost more on like a sort of social like behavioral or taste level than it was on just like a sort of basic, by and large, the atmosphere was not like homophobic in the sense of it should be illegal, (laughs) but it was certainly hostile to the kind of stuff that I liked and the way that I behaved um, and the things that I said, you know, which I think were all sort of so linked to my own queerness on some level that the isolation felt quite social on that, in that sense. Yeah. I mean, not to sort of, bang the shame drum but yeah of course come like, to, massive...
0: that was going to be the other name for this podcast we were, it was homo <laughs> sh- bang the shame the drum, the shame drum.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. is a great name for a podcast which i might be using I mean, please do and, and of, shame was a huge uh, of course a sort of fundamental part of my life as it is for most teenagers anyway but that that added I guess, the added level of being a queer boy, especially in an all-male environment constantly every day. Um, I think, yeah, that a kind of self-loathing shaped not only the way I interact with people, but also probably my love of comedy on some level um, is based on, I mean, so much stand-up and so much comedy comes from the, the massive tension between self-loathing and self-love. And that was always the stuff that I really liked is trying mm. to balance, like that immense feeling of shame with the simultaneous kind of suspicion that you might be a world-leading genius and how those things square up (laughs) against each other in kind of day-to-day experiences. I always think (laughs) it's just so funny.
0: Yes, it's really interesting that, isn't it? Because I do think that that is a very specific part of the queer experience. When I do my own sort of internal research on it, of like, okay, so why why do I have feel those two things warring in me? Is like, I think I told myself that if I could just be the world leading genius, then I could escape the other stuff. And and, and yeah. you know, sometimes I really admire, and I don't want to be reductive or rude. Sometimes, sometimes I really <laughs> admire straight men, for example, for just being having so. Little propaganda against them that they are just very happy to just be, you know, that they d- yeah. like the world is structured in and around them.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that's true in, in lots of ways. I definitely used to think that more. My experience over the past sort of few years, like talking to people, especially over the pandemic or like just post that, where everyone's just a bit like lost and attempting to fight to regain any sense of purpose or direction, is that. Mm. Really, like, the experiences that I had as a, like, queer teenager or, or, like, the the experiences I still have as, like, a queer man are so similar on Mm -hmm. some level to the experiences that a lot of my, like, straight male friends are having. And actually the kind of the facade of um, easygoingness or, like, the appearance of a lack of anxiety or neuroses... That I project onto them because of my own experiences, often when I actually end up talking to them about their lives, which i 've only done recently it's it's totally my own anxiety that has made me think that about them, and really they're, wow. they're experiencing the exact same thing constantly, and trying to i guess I guess a lot of what the what, what the comedy I do about at the moment is kind of about on some level is the way in which self-defining or like clinging to your own aspects your own identity or seeing yourself as like really unique and separated from everyone else can actually sometimes like block off the kind of connections that you could be making with people who actually underneath the surface have had very similar experiences to you despite the the appearance that they they might be quite different. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah yeah it does it really does and I think actually we're sort of if you end up being queer you're sort of blessed with at least you are then doors open to the language around expressing yourself around stuff which i don't actually i do i think um a lot of straight men are not afforded that to use Mm -hmm. straight men as an example but one of the things you talk about in your show is sort of the idea that being gen z is really difficult and perhaps you're viewed um as difficult actually right and Mm -hmm. what what do you think that is
1: um, I don't, I, I mean, I think that, that, that hopefully part of what I'm trying to do in the show is sort of ironically push back against the idea that that Gen Z is anything or that that you can sort of confidently say any any one statement about an entire generation of people. And all of the stereotypes, even if you take the most basic ones, are like pretty directly contradictory to each other. Like the idea that, that Gen Z is difficult, or that, I always think of like, Often in the same headline or the same like sort of (laughs) bullshit right-wing article, you'll get the idea that Gen Z are sort of weak, (laughs) oversensitive pushovers who are obsessed with being offended and simultaneously, so politically calculating and astute that they will in five to ten minutes (laughs) cause the end of Western civilization... And it just yes. doesn't square up in any way. And, and it's the same with. I always think about how. I mean, people constantly complain about how Gen Z is so deeply hypersexualized, almost like obsessed with sex and provocative in some way, or like everyone's like getting their clothes off on Instagram and doing OnlyFans. And then simultaneously, that they're, they're prudish, woke scolds who don't <laughs> like when two characters kiss in, on TV or whatever. And it's like, what you've done there is you've, you've taken two different people's opinions that happen to be the same age <laughs> and tried to <laughs> characterise a generation with them. Not that there aren't trends, but, I mean, God. Uh, and I, I think that part of what I found funny uh, in writing the show was thinking about how much Gen Z talked about as a mm. monolith and how little they're, I guess they're listened to or how little, they're, how little space they're afforded to, to speak for themselves or, or how little space we're afforded to speak for ourselves on those kind of issues. And the contradictions I just think are so funny, the paradoxes and the, the tensions between the, the kind of desperate, um, fear-induced attempts to try and describe what's going on with the children.
0: Um, I always, I just think it's so funny. That's the end of part one of our lovely chat with Leo. Um, part two is on the feed.
1: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman.